Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Thursday of every month at the Deer Pile in Denver, Colorado. These stories were recorded on February 20th, 2014. The theme of the show was Lived Relived. So our next storyteller is someone who I've admired from afar, and I actually just met him for the first time tonight, and I'm pretty excited about it. If you know him, you're going to be excited. If you don't know him, well, then you are in for a treat. He, uh, he's an educator, a poet. He has a book uh, that he is uh, releasing here at the Deer Pile on March 11th. He's having a party uh, to celebrate it here, March 11th. The name of the book is Coyotes. Uh, he's also the poetry editor at Suspect Press, and uh, he has a he's a he has a the website where he does his educational stuff is minordisturbance.org. Please help me welcome Ken Arkind. The funny thing that I'm going to say now is uh, the part about being born and raised in Aurora. I was just raised there. I was not born there. That's kind of what this story is about. Um, the greatest thing about Aurora is that I can make fun of it all I want, but if someone else makes fun of it, I get really pissed off. Uh, it's kind of like the New Jersey of Denver, you know? Um, so, the theme relive was amazing to me. Because as a poet, you spend a lot of your time reliving moments in your life, and... I don't know how many people tell stories, but if you tell the story over and over again, every once in a while, you totally come across a story where you realized you missed the point from the get-go. And, um, and this is one of those stories that I've recently been telling. Um, and I'm going to dedicate it to one of the best teachers I know, Nate Schmidt. Um, He's getting beer. Well, of course he is. Um, but it's about uh, the teacher who taught me to write poetry and about making two best friends and losing them. Um, I moved to Aurora in the fourth grade uh, shortly after my father's death. And the funny thing about trauma and the inevitable scars that come from it is that the latter turns your skin into Velcro and you find yourself stuck to some strange friends. So if you ever wonder why your friends are so weird, maybe just take a look at yourself. (laughs) In truth, the majority of friendships formed in those years of life, fourth or fifth grade, are not formed out of choice but actually out of natural selection or survival or just happenstance, right? I don't want to play with you, but you're here, so let's make it work. Um, You hold on to whatever strange person would let you into the horror of middle school scissors you off into whatever social group it sees fit to place you in. Uh, Jeff Brantley at Independence Elementary was the exception at our school. He could be friends with whomever he wanted, and for some reason he picked me, He was good at sports, he had an older sister that listened to hip-hop music, and his backyard faced the school, which meant he had to hop his fence to get to class every day. Now, in the fourth grade, there is nothing cooler than hopping fences. (laughs) Except for maybe Storm Shadow from G.I. Joe. But every morning, every morning, like a ninja racing the morning bell, every other kid would watch in awe as Jeff Brantley would hop the fence, just in time to get into class. Uh, Sometimes he would do it wearing his sister's public enemy t-shirt. That's how cool he was. He was a ninja in a public enemy t-shirt. I did not have a public enemy t-shirt or a fence to hop or an older sister. All I owned was a rat tail. 
I had a rat tail and a green hypercolor t-shirt that didn't work anymore. My only real claim to fame was that I was the first kid in our school to headbutt someone. And it's funny when you think about it, but I had had already received two assault tickets by the time I had reached the sixth grade. The first was from throwing a desk onto a teacher's foot in the fourth grade. And the second was how I met my other good friend, Israel Stivers. Israel was big, and he came from Kansas City, and he didn't talk much. He moved into a duplex down the street from me and lived with his mother and sister. Now, when he was introduced to the class, I immediately mistrusted him, based largely on the fact that he said he was from Kansas City, Missouri, which had to be a lie. See, logic dictated that Kansas City had to be in Kansas, son. Okay? So this made him a liar, and the only liar that I trusted was myself. The fight that we got into which made us friends, because sometimes that's how boys make friends, uh, or anyone for that matter. The fight started because some other kid in our class thought it might be a smart idea to let his pretty older sister visit him at recess. The moment she entered the blacktop, she was swarmed by a mob of confused and sticky-haired man-children, fresh from lunch and full of Frito pie and chocolate milk enthusiasm. We didn't really know what we were doing. Like, we weren't going to ask for her number or anything. We just wanted to get as close to her as we could, you know? Like, stand next to her and not say anything, all cool-like. And as happens with large groups of boys, we started shoving each other, and I made the mistake of shoving the big kid in the Chiefs jersey. And like all great friendships, ours started out with a serious ass-whooping, and he beat the crap out of me. For all of my fighting, I wasn't very good at it. In fact, I would get into a fight about once a week, but I lost almost all the time. I wasn't very big, but that didn't stop me from trying, right? I was really good at getting back up. I am nothing if not good at getting back up. And maybe, maybe that's why we became friends. He had to respect my gangster. The part where all of this turned sour is when the security guard tried to break us up. Now, while she was pulling me away, I bit her arm, which left her bloody, and me with an assault charge. Israel had never gotten into trouble before and just got to go home for a week. I was suspended for a period of time, dependent on what happened with the courts, uh, and, and, uh, and maybe he felt bad for me, or maybe it's because we just lived in the same neighborhood and had no school or supervision for the next week, but we started hanging out like every single day. Uh, I introduced Israel to Jeff, and we all became friends. Now, the funny thing about anger is there are people who spend millions of dollars trying to convince children that anger is a bad thing. Anger is a chameleon changing its colors. Anger is a natural reaction to the world around you. It is a symptom. It is not a cause. It's an important thing to remember. And at that point in my life, I was told so many times that I needed to, be stop, needed to stop being angry. My ability to respond disappeared, and instead of using my tongue, I learned to use my fists. Eventually, after counseling, fines, and a trip to court, I was allowed back into class. And so I was back at school with my friends, which was a good thing because my fifth grade teacher was Dr. Coffee. Now, I don't know who the second fifth grade teacher at Independence Elementary was, but she... It must have been a miserable life because nobody wanted any teacher but Dr. Coffee. The guy was about six foot four, 350 pounds. He drove a silver Volkswagen Beetle, bright silver, all right? He had the biggest, sweetest bottom lip, a horseshoe of gray hair, wore pastel, two, like two sizes too small, button-up short sleeve shirts with ties that didn't match or make any sense, and he had sweat, paint, sweat stains the size of the Rocky Mountains. I didn't know that people got sweat stains until this man. They were that prominent. And I don't know what Roald Dahl looks like, but I imagine in my head, I always thought after reading those books that he looked just like Dr. Coffee. That's all I had to go on. He was a sweet man, 
He listened. He introduced me to the novel Maniac McGee. He paid attention. The funny thing about friends is when they're made on circumstance, sometimes they come or go. And I made the mistake once of bringing a Chinese star, a throwing star to class, right? Super cool. And, and I don't know how it happened, but, but I realized that, that Jeff and Israel were going to tell on me. And I remember running out of the hallway and seeing the two of them looking at Dr. Coffee, and they knew who I was. They knew how angry I would get. And even if both of them could beat me up, they laughed and ran away anyway. And I was stuck with them on one side of the hallway, me in all of my anger, and Dr. Coffee in the center. Now, the thing Relive is interesting to me because I wrote this story so many times and I never realized what this man did until this moment. He was so huge, you could hit him with his own Volkswagen Beetle and probably not make a dent. <laughs> so whatever screaming, flailing fists of my 60 pounds, 70 pounds could do no damage to this man. In my mind, I remember him restraining me picking me up, moving me down to the hallway, to the dean's office, where I would get in trouble and eventually be sent home again. What I didn't realize until writing this story recently is that when I came charging down the hall, the man didn't restrain me. He simply dipped down till he matched my height, and he held me. He hugged me. For me and all of the bad that I did, for all of the anger, for all of the breaking the rules with the Chinese star, for all of the wanting to attack and the assault tickets and the nowhere to put all of this, he held me and he cried. And I, I never realized the importance of it until that moment and how much it taught me about how to deal with those places. And what is poetry if not every darkness inside of us thrown at the canvas of a page or an audience? What is poetry if not that man holding me back and loving me regardless? Thank you. Our second storyteller also found us on the interwebs. And we are excited to have her here. Uh, I'm not going to say much about her because she has a pretty amazing story to tell you. Um, so please help me in welcoming Dori Samadzi Bonner. So I don't want this room to empty out or anything, but I was born in Afghanistan. I lived there until I was 10 years old under the Russian occupation, so I grew up in war. One night when I was 10, my dad, um, I woke up in the middle of the night because my dad was fiddling with my hands, and I wake up, the room is pitch black, and I see his shadow over me just trying to push these gold bangles in my hand. I'm thinking this man has lost his mind because it's middle of the night and he's putting these gold bangles in my hands. So a thought crossed my mind, I wondered if they were marrying me off to somebody. I mean, that was entirely a possibility, so instead he started hushing me because I was kind of nervous, and I was asking him why he was doing that, and he says, just follow me. So he's holding my shoes, and we're following, down, following him downstairs, where I find, uh, we lived in these military compounds, so I find my mom and my brother also waiting down there, and underneath us, there's uh, Russian soldiers, 
that basically guarded our military compounds. So they had revoked everybody's visas. Nobody could leave because it was war. They wanted you to stay there and fight. And we literally ran for our lives. We put a lock on the door, left everything intact. And I remember this like it was yesterday because we had, like I remember looking back at our kitchen right before my dad puts this lock and seeing these dirty dishes. And I'm thinking, I am so glad I didn't have to wash that tonight. <laughs> and so we leave and we're literally like tiptoeing. So my mom first leaves. And then once she makes it to the getaway car that was my dad had parked behind the compound, then my brother leaves, and then me and my dad leave also. So we take a flight to India, and the reason why my parents escaped to India is because um, they knew that as, as soon as they got there, the American embassy would give them a visa entry to the U.S. right away, or at least that's what they had heard. So we take a rickshaw. Uh, well, we get to India um, and take a rickshaw straight to the U.S. embassy. And as soon as we get there, there's a huge sign that says, we no longer do this. Instead, we're offering visa lotteries. So twice a year, about 50, people, 50 families can go and put your name down. So we're like, no problem. We're just, we just went and looked for a place for rent. And we noticed as we're walking from one place to another, from one street to another, we noticed this, this cheap sign for rent. And we're like, it was a huge house, like marble pillars and all of this. We're like, okay, well, let's go and check it out. And we go in, and the guy is like, come on in. We go inside through his luxury house and opens up a door, and it was a garage. So he was renting his garage to us, which we did not mind renting because it was really cheap. And the gold bangles that my dad was putting in my hands was because we couldn't be caught with cash. Because if the government, uh, they had a curfew. So if on the way to the airport they stopped us and found all this cash on us, then they knew that we were leaving. So we um, ended up staying in India, and um, but this was like literally a garage. And I'm not talking about American garage. I'm talking about just cockroaches everywhere. And we, my mom went and bought cotton and basically uh, sewed like these um, handmade bedrolls that we slept on. And so for the first time ever in our lives, and it was really awkward because, you know, I'm 10 years old, my brother's two years older than me. Uh, we all the four of us sleep in this small little room that was sort of like the size of a baby's room here. And next to it was another room. Uh, it has a hole in the middle of it where you're supposed to use for a toilet. And we're like, okay, now we know where that smell is coming from. And it had like roaches coming out of it. So my dad being, you know, s such a nice guy, every time that I would need to go to the restroom and every time that I would go and take a shower, he would spray it down so that the roaches would go back in. And then you have like one to two minutes to do your business before the roaches are crawling back out. And these are huge roaches. It's like they can fly. So, <laughs> But we didn't mind any of this um, because we were just hoping, we were convinced that we were going to put our name down. I mean, how could our name not be, not be picked by the, by the lottery system? And we literally lived our life from one meal to the next. Some days we had one meal, some days two, and maybe every now and again we got lucky when my aunt sent us money from here then we would have three meals. And whenever she sent us that money, my, my dad even bought us bananas, which we couldn't really afford to buy. So like he would buy four bananas. And I mean, as soon as he would bring it in, my brother and I would go through it really quick. And <clears throat> then we would look at my parents' bananas. And 
So my dad always found a reason or another. He would always say, well, does this, you know, taste funny to you? I don't, I don't like this banana. So we, he would always give me his, and my mom gave hers to my, my brother. And soon enough, we also learned the game. So like around 4 in the evening, my brother and I took a nap because um, the ice cream truck came around, So, and all the kids would go to it. And the first week that we lived in India, it was like 200 degrees or something. And we're... <laughs> We, we hear all this commotion, and we're like, oh, you know, what is that? Let's go and check it out. And so, and when I say, you know, so we lived on the back of the house where there's like, you know, it's like an alley. And this is no American alley. This is like, you know, it's, it's like dog poo everywhere, and you have to, you know, go step over that to get to wherever you need it to go to get onto the main street. And so we're like, we get, get to the main street, and we see the kids swarming the, you know, the ice cream truck. And we're like, oh, great. So my dad was like, oh, you guys, want, you, know, you guys want ice cream? And we're looking at him like, it's 200 degrees. Of course we want ice cream. But we knew he couldn't afford it. So um, after that, every 4 o'clock, we would take a nap because we didn't want him to feel bad for not being able to buy us things. Um, and the only thing that we ever waited for was the chance to go and put our names down uh, for the lottery system. So we would wake up in the middle of the night because we wanted to make sure we were part of that first 50 families that they were taking in. So we would walk to the embassy like an hour away, which was no, no problem. Um, but on the way back, it was a hassle because it was so hot and we couldn't afford really to take a rickshaw all the time. So we would walk back, and we were so excited. On the way back, my dad would say, well, you know, today is Dory's birthday, so I put it under your name, and I, I just know you have good luck, so it's going to come out. And the next time, he would put it under my brother's name and so forth. And then they would make an announcement that, Somebody's name had been picked, um, and we had this, the only thing we had um, uh, in this garage besides the bedrolls was this radio that my dad found, and we would draw each other's names and pick a name as to who's going to hold the antenna so that, you know, you could actually listen to the announcement, and so then they would make the announcement, <clears throat> and then we would wait for the mailman around 11 o'clock, and as soon as we would see him kind of turn around the corner, my brother and I would start running toward him, just expecting that they ha you know, he had that letter for us that we had been approved to come here. And there came a time where he would start nodding his head no from far away. And it was, it was heartbreaking. Um, so three years go by uh, of us living like this, and our name was still not, not called. We were completely out of these gold bangles, and the only thing left was a necklace that my mom's uncle, who passed um, a couple of years before, had, had sent, like his wife had sent it to her. So they sold that necklace and hired a smuggler to have me and my brother come here. And we were so excited that night when they woke us up to say that that's where we introduced us to this man that we had never met before. And um, you would think that we would be scared, which, which we were, but more than anything, our desire to want to be here was so much more. So we were completely overwhelmed. And I remember this so clearly because it was the very first time I ever saw my dad cry. I mean, he's this, he's, he was a general back home, and he's this tall, just really, just, he looks really tough, but he, he's a sweetheart. And he's standing there as me and my brother are getting in the cab with this smuggler. And he's holding my mom back because she's screaming and going crazy, and she has, like, tears rolling down his face. And still, he was forcing a smile and waving at us, and that's how we left. And I wondered at that time if I would ever see him again, but again, in the back of my mind, I was so excited to come here that I didn't really give it another thought. 
So the smuggler explains to us that we have a flight in Thailand, and after that we're going to go straight to America. But once we get to Thailand, he ditched us. We waited for him for four hours in the, um, at the airport, and he never came back. We convinced ourselves that maybe he got caught because we just couldn't believe somebody would do that. Um, but he had asked me prior to leaving to give him this envelope that my mom was sewing inside of my shirt. It had just a little bit of money and some contact information. And so that told us that maybe he didn't get caught. Maybe he meant for this. So we walk out because we were nervous about getting caught and end up in Thailand prison. So we started walking out with the rest of the people that were walking out. And from far away, so, so we, we spoke Russian because we live with Russians in our country. And we, we didn't know any English. So from far away as we walk out, we're like, my brother's like, does that say, that's a K, that's a F, and that's a S. And I'm like, no, 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 that's C at the end. So we're reading KFC. We're like, okay, well, that looks like American letters. We can go over there. So, and then we realized it's a restaurant. Um, so we wait there. And the whole time we were in Thailand, we ate KFC all the time. I would never eat it again. <laughs> and so, so we go there, and we ask the guy to let us use the phone. And now we have to phone the main house where, where this person lives. And he had to go and get my parents because, of course, they don't have a phone in the garage. So it was an all-day event before we were able to finally get through our parents, and they sent us some other people to assist us. And we were living in Thailand in a hotel room, uh, me and my brother sleeping on one bed and this new smuggler on another bed. And my, da- my brother and I would take turns to like sleep this way, our backs to each other, because we were just not sure what this man's intentions might be, so that was the best way we could protect ourselves. And finally, one day I asked him, like, you know, if you are going to sell us, just, just tell me now, because I don't know why we're waiting here, um, or just send, it, send us back home. Whatever money that those people would give you, I'm sure my parents could, could give it to you, so just send us back. And he started laughing, and in Hindi, he told my brother, like, your sister is so crazy. And um, he's like, I'm waiting for this holiday in America called Christmas. And around Christmas, the airports are really busy, so chances of your uh, discrepancies in your passport, would, it, it, there would be less chance of you getting caught. So that's what he was waiting for. And in December of 1991, I was 13 years old, my brother 15, we walked at JFK Airport speaking the only English words we knew, which was, I need asylum. And so we go straight to this little room, and... Um, they're interviewing us as far as like where we came from and all this and the only thing we kept saying is I need asylum, I need asylum and the rule, the immigration rule at that time was as long as you could say that as long as you're underage and you've put step foot in the American soil they can't turn you away so um, they took us and we ended up staying with my um, cousins and a year later my parents were also able to join us and so we had this apartment that we were living in. We were decorating it and everything. And I get a letter. My dad comes up and says, there's a letter from immigration. And usually when you apply the immigration, they tell you, please wait 460-something days before you hear from us. And this time they were like, your appointment is next week. So we start jumping up and down. We're like, this is it. You know, this is, this is when they're going to. So our asylum had had the status was um, unaccepted. Basically, like, it was, they were waiting to make a decision whether or not they would give us permanent residency, but we were able to work, and we, you know, so we had, we were able to work and drive in places, but we just, they just wouldn't let us stay here uh, permanently. So we go to this appointment, and on the way there, my dad is, like, asking my mom, what are you going to do when you hear the words, 
asylum approved. And we were like making fun of my dad. It's not approved, it's approved. So, so we were like all excited about this. And my mom's like, oh, I'm going to give the homeless man $100. I had called all of my friends. We were going to go out and all kinds of stuff. And we walk into that room, and the minute you walk in, you just knew. We're like, oh, great. Everybody was crying. And this lady that was next to me, she's like, you know, in her broken English, she's like, where you go? And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? I'm, I'm going home. And they're like, she goes, yeah, so where's your home? And I'm like, well, I live in North Hollywood. And then I, I start to put things together. She was asking me where we're, they're going to send us because that letter was a deportation letter. And what I didn't notice is the fine prints at the bottom that said, don't forget to bring your family photos and things that are dear to you. So... We, um, we, didn't, we couldn't afford much at this point, but the one thing that we did is we, we, whatever money we made, everybody chipped in. We, ha- we had hired an attorney, but she was nowhere to be found that day. So um, I asked the, the guy who was standing there, I'm like, hey, you know, I need to go and use the phone because I saw my dad hovering over complaining of a chest pain, and he was having a heart attack. And I'm like, I need to call. I need to. I need to call somebody. And he was. He wouldn't let us use the phone. And finally, I was able to use the phone by telling him that I need to use the restroom. And I just opened whatever exit door that I could open up, and called um, our attorney, who faxed over a paper essentially saying, if you don't let him seek medical assistance, basically you guys will be in big trouble. That's the only reason why they gave us a three months visa. Everybody else in that room was deported. So now we're living in fear. Like, oh, going to your mailbox, it was, it was a scary thing. Like, we, you know, my dad would be like, you go and get the mailbox. Or, you know, so it was, it was a big chore just to go and open up the mailbox because we were afraid of the next letter that we're going to get. Today, I'm afraid of opening my mailbox because of credit card bills that my husband might see. But <laughs> So um, we ended up getting a letter that said, your appointment is on this day. And so unlike before when we were excited, we were really not sure of this appointment. But the one thing we noticed is that the judge who had our previous, um, who was working on our, on our case before, um, it was a different judge's name. So the judge had changed, and we were hoping that this judge would be a little bit more lenient. And we walk in, and it's an older gentleman. Um, you know, we were, we were hoping he would smile, but he wouldn't even look at us. So, the, you know, the whole thing starts, he starts by asking my dad questions like, um, you know, did you come here illegally, this and that? And my dad would start giving him these long answers. Well, yes, but. And he was like, no, I don't want you to give me an explanation. It's just a yes or no answer. So he kind of carried on with my dad like that for a while. Finally, my dad, my dad gets up and he pulls his shirt up and he's like, and he's, he's just like crying while he's explaining all this. And I'm standing next to him translating. He's like, this is what the communists did to me, showing all his scars from the time the communists had tortured him, tried to pull his toenails with pliers and all kinds of stuff. And um, he tells the judge, you know, I know you're wearing this robe and you're singing that elaborate seat and that's why you're judging me. But if you were me, I know that you would do the same thing because you, you were just trying to save your kid's life. So he, he leaves and after about an hour or two, he comes back and we know that he doesn't have this robe on comes, goes to his desk and grabs something. Um, I'm wrapping up because I'm running out of time, but he goes and grabs this, this thing from his desk, comes over, and we're like all watching to see where he's going, comes behind my dad and puts his hand on my dad's shoulder. And he's like, open up your hand. And he opens up his hand. My dad is like, why would, why would I do that? We're like, just do it, just do it. 
So he opens up his hand and he puts the stamp in my dad's hand. And he goes, Mr. Smadzai, I would like to stamp your, ch- I would like you to stamp your children's papers yourself. Welcome to America. Later, it took about another five years before I was able to become a citizen. But finally, on January 29, 2009, <clears throat> I was sworn in as an American citizen. And that day, it was like 2,000 people. But for me, it was just, it was my day. And I saw many people from texting and doing all kinds of things that they were doing. And as soon as everything was over, like I was sworn in as a citizen, the room emptied out like there was nobody that ever stayed there. And I felt like this, this burning desire to want to thank someone, but, but there was nobody. So I made a promise to myself that day <clears throat> that I would actively look for platforms that allowed me to stand here in front of you and thank you from the bottom of my heart and the depth of my soul. Thank you for giving me this place I call home. The Narrator's Podcast is recorded and produced by the Denver Diatribe. Check out their weekly show at denverdiatribe.com. The Narrator's Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl. Or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about the narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to the narratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>